I uh, invite you to turn to Romans 9 again. Romans chapter 9, as you do, I had a text exchange with a friend of mine this week who knew I was preaching through Romans 9, and his, uh, he just simply said, well, have you split the church yet? <laughs> I said, no. And it just re- was a great reminder to me how easy it is to just open this book and preach the next verse to this body. And I don't tell you enough how grateful I am to your commitment to just believing and understanding the next verse, whatever the Lord gives us. So thank you for your gracious and consistent love for God and his truth. We're dropping into Romans 9, verses 19 to, 9, 19 to 29. And this is a section that follows a section that Paul has, has really thrown down a gauntlet of theology that was difficult to swallow. He had just said, after discussing the sovereignty of God and salvation, of saving some and not all, saving some and not others. He says, it's actually the case that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He makes some clay for honorable use, some for dishonorable use, and he actually hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Even though uh, Pharaoh had hardened his own heart, God was involved with this. Which leads to the question that is asked and posed in verse 19. You will say to me then, Paul says, why does God, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? If he's God and he he, uh, hardened the heart of this king of Egypt, how can he find fault with Pharaoh if he was the one who did that? Which brings up the question that must be answered. And so Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from one same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, my beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out uh, about Israel, concerning Israel, saying, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left to us a remnant or a posterity, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. You're aware that the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Romans, and it's a letter to a group of Italian Christians there in the middle of Italy in a city of about four million. This was a large, sprawling ancient metropolis He was directing his attention toward them to help correct and put a foundation on their theological understanding of the gospel. 
Paul told them from the very beginning of the letter, he tells them in the end how he would love to come and see them. He actually says to let you experience the spiritual giftedness that I have and so that I can experience your spiritual giftedness. I want us to be encouraged by one another. And Paul would eventually get to Rome, but not as a tourist and not as a missionary. Paul would eventually get to Rome as a, what? A prisoner. You'll remember on his third missionary journey, he's coming down the coast of, of Asia Minor. He's hop, uh, hopped a ride on a, on a merchant ship. It stops at Miletus, which is about 30 miles from Ephesus, where the church that he founded and spent three years as a pastor was. And he called for the elders of, of the church at Ephesus to come and meet him there. He didn't know how long the, the ship would be in dock, so he didn't want to go the 30 miles there. He stayed close to port. The elders came and had this really an, uh, an indescribable visit with, with Paul where he, he's instructing them on how to oversee the flock. And he also says, this is it. You're not going to see me again, which caused weeping and hugging and, and a tearful moment as they parted. One of the things that sticks out to me in that encounter with the Ephesian elders, though, is, is the way he described the gospel. In Acts 20, you can just listen, verse 22, he says, And behold, now I am bound by the Spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, what do you know, Paul? That the Holy Spirit solemnly testified to me that in every city, bonds and afflictions await me. Can you imagine that? Paul, I want you to be a missionary. And everywhere you go, you're going to be put in bonds and chains. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be left for dead. Ultimately, you'll lose your life. I think most of us all would look for life verses. And I have a handful. This is in that hand. How would Paul respond to this? He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify, to proclaim solemnly, and then he says this, of the gospel, of the grace of God. Of all the ways Paul could have described the gospel... That shorthand version is so instructive. The gospel, the good news of the grace of God, that God would give undeserved sinners a gift of salvation. It was shorthand for the entire narrative and theology of the good news of Jesus Christ. Like no other chapter in the Bible, Romans 9 unpacks what he means by the gospel of the grace of God that He's given us something immeasurably valuable in Christ. Undeserved, priceless gift that can only be attributed because of our sinful state from birth can only be attributed to God's kind, mercy, compassion, and sovereign choice. So as Paul teaches about salvation in Romans 9, he teaches about God's sovereignty, his authority, his choosing, his predestining, his election. You'll remember he began talking about that over in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, and his conclusion to that is, if God's for us, who can be against us? This is just too marvelous for me. 
In chapter 9, he talks about God's elective purposes and his choice, specifically in the nation of Israel, extending to us as Gentile believers as well. And as we've looked at this, we've, we've landed on two choices theologically that everyone has to, has to make a determination on. Either man is sovereign because of his free will in salvation. And in that scheme, when man is sovereign, man is the determiner, the focus, and the hero of those who hold to what we call an Arminian scheme of theology. Or God is the determiner, God is the focus, God is the chooser, God is in charge, and thus God is the hero of Romans 9, because he is the one who alone makes decisions related to those who come to faith in Christ. I believe, and I'm more and more convinced, the more that we look at this passage, that to deny God's sovereign choice and election and predestination in salvation is a theological assault on his very character and nature. And that's exactly how Paul assesses a disagreement with that theology here in Romans 9. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that this study was going to involve lots of review. And that's because we have to get a running start. You have to navigate the on-ramp before you get on this freeway. So let's do it again. He begins the chapter by saying, and this is so encouraging... If I could, he says, if it were possible, it's not, but if it were possible, I would sacrifice my own salvation for the faith of my brethren, the Jews. Those Jews who had received the promise of the Messiah and ultimately rejected Jesus of Nazareth as that fulfillment. A passionate call to God for his brethren to come to know Christ. That doesn't sound like a fatalistic Calvinazi, does it? Then he rehearses all the blessings the Jews had received, this incredible gift. They had the law, they had the covenants, they had the the promises, they had the temple, and ultimately they had the Messiah himself from verse 5. If anyone should have figured this out, that Jesus is who he says he was, it ought to have been the Jews who had the Bible, the Old Testament, to tell them that, which sets up the question as to whether or not the word of God has failed which he answers in a um, very clear statement in verse 6. He said, what do you mean that God's word has failed? If God said, I'm going to choose Abraham and his descendants, I'm going to give to this people the Messiah, through whom I'm going to bless and save all who believe in, in, in and throughout the whole world, and they rejected the Messiah, has this derailed? Has the word of God failed? And he says, no. And the reason is, some did believe. Some did believe. Look at the very uh, nature of the disciples, all Jews. Some did believe because not all Israel is really Israel. Said another way, not all those who are born as descendants of Abraham biologically are sons of faith spiritually. And then he says, not only that, you have to remember, Paul says that God does not think and act like we do. Remember a few weeks ago when we said from Psalm 50 that the indictment against Israel was God saying, you thought I was just like you. And we all do. We tend to default by thinking, well, God would think like us. God would act like us. God would be merciful like us. God would execute judgment like us. He says, no, it's not like that. And he uses two examples, two brothers, two sets of brothers, rather, 
First, he says, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the law, and it was the, the way that land was handed down. It was the way that you fed your family for the oldest child to receive the blessing, the inheritance of the father. The younger uh, children then, the younger siblings, would actually serve as workers to the older. He was the inheritor. God actually chose the secondborn, which would have been Isaac, over the firstborn, who was Ishmael. And not only that, he chose the secondborn of Jacob after the firstborn Esau. Now, it's very obvious in the first situation that God told Sarah, I'm going to come next year, you're going to have a child, or I'm going to make this happen. Actually, before that, he said, I'll make this happen. And she was old, she says, this isn't going to happen. He goes, oh, well, yes, it will. And, and she waited and waited and waited. It didn't happen. And so she took matters into her own hands, went into her handmaiden Hagar, had her lie with Abraham, and Ishmael was born, thinking she could usher in the promise. And God says, no, that's not the way it works. So then he comes and says, you're going to have a, a, um, a child by next year. She laughs, comes back, and guess what? She has a child, Isaac. He was the son of the promise. And we kind of understand that because that was an arrangement really out of immorality. But he says, before you get too far down that road, there were another set of brothers. There was Jacob and Esau. He said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then he says this, before they were born, which makes us gasp. And before we finish gasping, he says, gasp further because before they had done anything right or wrong, good or evil, I made a choice of one over the other. Not based on anything they had done. Which raises the question, is that fair? Is that right? Or in theological terms, is that just? Did God do what was right? Did he do justice in that situation? Which leads them to ask that question and then to answer it with a text in Exodus 33 verse 19. And you expect this answer. He goes, okay, here's how God worked that out. God said to Moses in Exodus 33, I will be compassionate on, and you're waiting for this answer. This is what it's going to be based on, who I will be compassionate. I will be merciful on the one I'll be merciful to, which is really no answer at all. What he's saying is this choice, this sovereign choice is bound up in my inner workings of my attributes and character, says God. Then he illustrates that in verses 17 and following. He, he says, not only to choose one and not choose the other, not only to hate one and love the other, but I actually hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And you say, well, hang on. Then how can we blame Pharaoh for that? And then he starts the passage that we're in. And his answer to that is not really much of an answer at all. He says, I know you have the question, but who are you to ask this question? Very similar to the end of Job, right? Come to the end of Job and you're expecting this, why did he suffer so much? And the answer is, let me tell you who I am. Who are you to question the Almighty? The illustration is, can the lump of clay say to the potter who's molding it, why did you do this to me? Which leads us to the way Paul defends this doctrine is by defending the character and the nature and the attributes of God. So we began looking at this uh, a couple weeks ago at three attributes that God, uh, of God, three 
characteristics, three attributes of God that defend his sovereignty in salvation. It's his character that Paul uses to defend the objections to his sovereignty. People say, hang on, what about this? And you and I have the same questions that this text raises, meaning that Paul is actually teaching what we think he's teaching, which is why he raises the objections that you and I have. Some people say, well, I know it sounds like he's saying that, but he's not really saying this. This is a spiritual Jedi mind trick. You know, he's just kind of, this is, he's sovereign, but not really. Well, actually, he is sovereign, and he is so sovereign, Paul knows the questions we ask, and he asks them for us. And the answer is all rooted in God's nature, God's character. So let's look at them, the first two very briefly, and then we'll look at the third. The first attribute is God's righteous right. God's right. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for the one who, who can resist his will? Verse 20, he goes on to say, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Hang on, Paul, that wasn't an answer. No, it was a rebuke, a stinging rebuke. It's okay to ask these questions. It's not okay to demand an answer. The thing molded cannot say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And then here it is, does the potter not have the right over the clay? Absolute sovereignty that God can make one lump of vessel for honor and one lump a vessel for dishonor or common use. Said another way, one for salvation, one not for salvation. Which leads to the second attribute that God through the Apostle Paul, defends here. Not only his right to make that decision, secondly, his patience, his glorious patience. What if God, verse 22, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endured with patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Everyone rushes to say, what does it mean these vessels were prepared for destruction? That's a good question that he's answering, but the bigger question is, why is God patient with anyone? That's the question that Paul really raises here. The vessels made for destruction are just a descriptive part of a prepositional phrase. God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, his wrath will be made known in the final condemnation and damnation of sinners, still endures with much patience those who will end up in hell. And the question becomes... If they're prepared for this destruction, who prepared them? Did God, well certainly the the context says God was a part of that preparation. But just as Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened it, everyone who goes to hell has a responsibility in their own destruction. We studied that in detail last week and you're welcome to go back and review that. Verse 24 though is a hinge verse. And this gets us into where we need to be today. Even us, he talks about, the, 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 actually, verse 23, he gives the reason for this, which is to show his glory. He did this to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. This whole scheme of saving and damning is to show what he's like, to show his character, wrath and grace in the same person. And he did so to show us who received mercy the incredible infinitude of his character his glory this glory was displayed look at verse 24 (laughs) whom he called that's 
predestination and calling language, not from among Jews only. Now, for this, we have to find the context here. He's specifically speaking of why some Jews were the remnant, we'll talk about in a moment, why some Jews believed the Messiah and all didn't. But those principles that God chose some to and some not to, which is the immediate reference, obviously extends out by, by, by virtue of his character to everyone because he extends it in verse 24. But also from among Gentiles, the principles of a sovereign election work in the Gentile world as much as they do in the Jewish salvation economy. And there are two possible responses to this statement. Verses 19 to 20, to question God and his character. Or verse 23, to know the riches of his glory. Is to remember that river? We just step back. What a river. I can't cross, can't go around, can't get under, can't fly over. I, I just want to say, what a God. Which leads us to a third attribute that he, Paul will employ to defend his, his character. And that's God's sovereign consistency. God's sovereign consistency. One would ask, now hang on, if, if what you're saying is true here, is this new, Paul? Paul understands this so, so vividly clear, vividly clear so that all the way through the book of Romans, actually all the way through his writings, he'll make a theological statement and just when some Jew might say, hang on, that's not the God of my Torah, that's not the God of my Old Testament, he refers to the Torah, he refers to the prophets, he goes to the Older Testament and says, this is the way God's always been. He is always saved by grace through faith, not on merit, all because of his choice. It's always been that way. So, in verses 25 to 29, he goes back to this great, famous, favorite argument of, let me show you what God said in the Older Testament. He proves his point with Hosea and with Isaiah. The message of God's salvation coming to only a chosen minority, here it was the Jews, predicted by Hosea, was not anything new. Now, before we look into this, don't miss the fact that Paul uses the Bible to prove the Bible. It's a great inner working. The Bible proves the Bible. This is the hermeneutical principle called the analogy of faith, meaning the Bible will never contradict. It will complement and explain itself from Genesis to Revelation. He does that here. He uses the analogy of faith to go back and prove his point. Now, he starts with Hosea. Let's look at this first reference to Hosea. Before we read exactly what he is going to describe, I want to show you where it comes from. The book of Hosea is a captivating book. If you, if you can, turn back over to Hosea for a, mo for a quick moment. If you find Daniel, just take a sharp right. You'll get there. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. 14 chapters right after the book of Daniel. Hosea is an intriguing book. It is one of the oddest, and if I can say this, one of the darkest books in the whole Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. It depicts Israel as an adulterous wife and God as a faithful husband. These events take place as the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C., and the prophet himself, Hosea himself, is chosen by God to be, get this, the living illustration of God's faithfulness and the adulterous spiritual nature of Israel. 
Hosea was told by God to find a wife. And what I find interesting is Hosea must have been a popular bachelor of the time, a man of God, the prophet of God, godly man, great man. And God says, I'm going to give you a wife. And he must have thought, great. And she's going to be a prostitute. Hosea 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, this is his first prophecy. (laughs) It's incredible. When the Lord, Lord first spoke through Hosea, he says, go and take yourself a wife. The happy thoughts end after that phrase. Of harlotry, a prostitute, and have children of harlotry. For, here's the illustration, the land, the people, the community of Israel commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Oh, there's so much between verses 2 and 3 that we'll find out about in heaven. He just does it. So, Hosea went and took Gomer the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, think about this. This is like their pastor. This is like the prophet. This is the man of God. Go marry Gomer, that woman of renown, that woman who many men in the community had known in an intimate way. Go marry her and have a son. As Hosea is faithful to this, they have a second and third child, and God instructs Hosea to give them names that express the Lord's displeasure with Israel. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Lo Ruamah in the Hebrew, literally unpitied, no mercy. If that's a bad name, look at the third child. He was instructed to name this child Lo-Ami in the Hebrew, which means not related to me, not my child. It's led some to speculate, since she was a prostitute, that these weren't even Hosea's children. The point isn't whether they are or not. The point is the illustration that God is using here. I mean, can you imagine having a child and say, not related? Come here, not related. Come here, not kin to me. Hey, not my son, come here. That was the name. Or, lo ruma, which means, no mercy. I will have no mercy or grace on you. That's the name of these children. Verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered and in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. Here is in Israel where God's people couldn't even be found. It will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. God will choose and find and protect a remnant. 
Look over at chapter 2, verse 23. I saw, I sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, and you are my God. You know the story. Gomer runs off. Finally, she says, enough of you, faithful husband. I'm going off to be my own. And then in chapter 3, Hosea goes and buys her back. And it's all to serve as an illustration of God's choice and loving faithfulness to Israel. That's what Paul picks up in his reference in his use of Hosea in verse 25 of Romans 9. You can go back there now. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people my people. This is specifically talking about Jews who are wayward. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, that place, they will be called sons of the living God. And you might be tempted to say, well, this is obviously talking about just Jews and not Gentiles. And I would understand your thinking, except for the fact that Paul uses this illustration right after he says what? In verse 20. Four, not only among the Jews, but also from among Gentiles. He expands it out. He uses it, the, those who were not my people, the Jews in that context, the Gentiles now, are called my people. That introduces the subject that we're going to spend all of chapter 11 studying together. The adoption of the Gentiles into the covenant blessings of Israel. As well as the regathering of the faithful remnant in Israel. Now, is this, uh, is this about wayward Jews or is this about newly believing Gentiles? Colin Cruz, in his excellent commentary on Romans, says this. This is so helpful. I couldn't improve on it, so I just want to read it to you. He says, quote, In their original contexts, these two quotations refer to the northern kingdom of Israel, not to Gentiles. Because of their sins, the northern kingdom was disowned by God. It was said to them, You are not my people. But in his mercy, God promised to reinstate them. I will call them my people who are not my people, Paul, uh, Hosea says. Paul sees in these texts a typological pattern revealing the way God deals with people. Something he applies to the inclusion of the Gentiles. They had never been my people and now we're going to be God's people. They were never called God's and now we're going to call God their own. You see the, the point he's making? I agree totally. And the reason I agree with that is that it's exactly what Peter says, quoting this same passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for, you were not, you, for once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Peter uses that Hosea passage to say this is talking about the inclusion of Gentiles. You say, well, then is it about wayward Jews coming home, or is it about the inclusion of the Gentiles? Romans 11 will say, yes, it's both. He quotes Isaiah so much in this chapter. You would expect him to go back to Isaiah. So in verse 27, he does. He cries out, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. We already read that in Hosea. There's a lot, lot of Jews, in other words. It is the remnant that will be saved. Now we find the principle. 
for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Here's the point. Lots of people who are ethnic Jews, not all people who are Jews by faith. Lots of people who, who understood that Yahweh is the king of Israel. Not many people who sacrificed from the heart, who understood him as their God, who were truly his people. And God will come and execute his word thoroughly and quickly. That's the coming judgment for all of us. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the, it's not Sabbath, it's Sebaoth, it's the, it's the, the, the king, the, the coming warrior, the judge, had left to us, here's a key word, a posterity. In other words, a remnant. We would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. If you study the Bible very long, you've come up with this, this, this term, the theology of the remnant, right? That God has a remnant even in apostate communities. Certainly the case in Israel is the case in Hosea's time and in, in Isaiah's time. Had God not chosen a remnant to be faithful to him, the whole nation would have gone their own way. That's his point. He's using that illustratively, not only of the Jews, but also of the believing community, as we'll see in chapter 10 and 11 in Romans. The principle here is being illustrated. Not all Israel is Israel. And not all who call themselves Christians are truly Christian. How can we know God will keep his word? Because he saves a remnant to which he always is faithful. Paul explains how the number had shrunk so drastically that only a remnant in Israel would really be saved. We're going to get to that next time in our study of verses 30 to 33. But if you go back to the original promise that God gave Abraham, it was they were, the Jews were going to be like the sand on the seashore. A lot of them. That's true. But would they all be converted? No. In fact, God would actually extend salvation through Jesus Christ beyond the Jews into the whole world to save people from every tribe and tongue and race. Look at the illustration there. Even if God's judgment and his mercy is found, unless God had left this remnant, this posterity, everyone would be gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. I, won't, I don't have time to go through the whole uh, story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but I think what he's referencing here is, is not, you know, maybe the, the source of homosexuality that caused that, that, that destruction as much as he's referencing the fact that, remember the bargain with Lot and Abraham? Hey, if there's 50, 40, 20... God says, well, if there's a remnant and ultimately you have a family turn, running away, some of which who even turn back on the run. But God still saved a remnant. Had he not, the whole world would have gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the illustration. So studying this this week and thinking about its application I know there's lots of questions in this text about sovereignty and man's decisions and man's responsibility. I understand all that. To me, the greater question pastorally is the theology of the remnant. I'm under no illusions 
that everyone who sits in this church who says I'm a Christian is necessarily a believer. Paul spoke of those who were so-called believers to the Corinthians. John said they went out from us because they were not true. They were not of us. And Jesus himself in Matthew 7 said, many will say to me, not some, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles, do many wonders in your name, and he will say to them, I depart from me. We never had a relationship. I never knew you. That's the theology of the remnant. Not all who claim to be saved are truly saved. You say, how can I tell? Do you believe and will you obey? That's it. Do you believe and will you obey? It's the same issue to test our own faith as it is to see if you're, if you're chosen. All of us ask, well, if this is true, how can I know that I'm chosen? How, how can I be sure I'm one of the elect? How can I be a vessel of, of honorable use? You can't except to believe. And only those who have been chosen believe. And I wish I could tell you that simple belief was all that it took. What did John say? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. He said, not everyone who says that I'm a believer is truly a believer. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. By this we know that we've come to know him if we walk in the same manner as he walked. There it is. Nominal Christianity, just kind of being around church, going to meetings, coming to church, saying, sending your kids to children's program, going to the women's, that's not saving grace. Can I say it simply? It's sold out, all in, no looking back commitment to the living Jesus Christ as your Lord. That's saving faith. Not a perfection, but in progress. As one of your elders, as a pastor here on staff, I want to tell you, I think our greatest concern is that we would have some who are in part of that, that group in our own church walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, signed the card, been to church, went to camp, and yet you don't really know Christ. He's kind of a part of your life, but he's not the point of your life. He's a part of your Sunday. He's not the point of your week. You've heard it so many times. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. How do we respond to this? You know, I was reading about three cross-references away from the study this week, and I found Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, who said, talking about grace, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. What a gift. Salvation is a gift of God. You receive it by belief and faith. And you execute that faith in making Jesus, submitting to Jesus as the Lord of our life and our existence. He can't say jump high enough that we won't try. He can't say swim far enough that we won't swim. He can't say obey enough that we would not attempt to obey. 
I think there's a remnant even in the church. Please, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you, do you not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The point of this to the believer is not to get all the answers. The point of this to the believer is in verse 23. To know the riches of his glory which he prepared on us and for us before the world began. This is a truly amazing doctrine. The question is, are we amazed? Father, please... Extend your mercy to those who have yet to believe. Extend your mercy on those who believe facts about your son but have never committed their life to him. Reveal to us the condition of our heart for your glory and for our good. Amen.